Hello, friends. Uh, welcome to uh, Greater Than Code, episode number 243. My name is uh, Mondo Escamilla, and I'm here with uh, my wonderful friends, uh, Damian Burke. Thank you, Mondo. And I am here with our wonderful friend, Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey. And we're all here today with Jennifer Strickland. With more than 25 years of experience across the product lifecycle, Jennifer aims to ensure no one is excluded from products and services. She first heard of Ohana in Disney's Lilo and Stitch. Ohana means family. Family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. People don't know what they don't know and are often unaware of the corners they cut that exclude people. Empathy, compassion, and humility are vital to communication about these issues. That's Jennifer's focus in equitable design initiatives. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi. Welcome. Hi, Jennifer. So glad you're here. I'm so intrigued. (laughs) And I'm like, 243? And this is the first I'm hearing of it? And you can go back and listen to them all. Yeah. (laughs) That must be five, almost six years. Do you have transcripts of them all? Yes, I think we do. Yeah, I think they're all transcribed now. I'm one of those people (laughs) that prefers to read things and listen. I can relate to that. I really enjoy Coursera courses. They have this interface where you can listen, watch the video, and there's a transcript that moves and highlights sentence by sentence. I want that for everything. Oh (laughs) yeah, that's fantastic! It's like closed captioning for your (laughs) for, for your audio as well. You can also choose the speed, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I generally want to speed things up. Great. Which, yes, now that I'm getting older, I have to realize, like, life is worth slowing down for. But when you're in a life where survival is what you're focused on, because, like, you know, you have a bunch of things that are, like, slow in your role, and survival is the first thing in your mind, you tend to take all the jobs, work all the jobs, do all of the things because it's how you get out of poverty or, you know, whatever your thing is. And so I've realized how much I've multitasked and worked and worked and worked. And uh, I'm sort of realizing that that there's a part of the quality that's lost there, you know, but we don't all have the privilege of slowing down. I can relate to that too. So in all, I believe every one of our past 243 episodes, we asked our guests the same question. You should know this is coming. Jennifer, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I don't know for sure. People have told me that I'm the kindest person they've ever met. People have said I'm the most empathetic person they've ever met. And I'm willing to bet that they're the same thing to the people. Mm. They just see them differently. I acquired being empathetic and kind because of my dysfunction and my invisible disabilities. I have a complex post-traumatic stress disorder from childhood trauma and then repeated life trauma. And the way it manifests itself is trying to anticipate other people's needs and emotions and moods and all of that and not make people mad. So, you know, it's a, that's a negative with a golden edge. You know, like life is full of shit, you know, how you respond to it shows who you are. And rather than molesting kids or hurting people, I chose to do what I could to make sure that no one else goes through that. And also to try to minimize it coming at me anymore, too. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) 
And there's positive ways of doing it. You don't have to be like the people who were crappy to you. And the same goes like here in DC, man, they're terrible drivers. And it's like everybody's taking their bad day <laughs> and putting it out on the people they encounter, whether it's in the store or on the, the roads. And it's like, don't do that. Like, how did it feel when your boss treated you like you were garbage? Why would you treat anyone else like garbage? Be, you know, be the change, so to speak. But, you know, we're all where we are. And like I said in my bio, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I realized recently earlier this week that it actually comes from donald rumsfeld who said unknown unknowns <laughs> and i'm like oh my god <laughs> oh <my Lord." laughs> okay you can find good in lots of places right <laughs> if you choose to absolutely yeah i mean look at what's come out of the horror of last year we talk about shit that we didn't used to talk about yeah it's more exhausting when lots of people but I think in the long run, it will help make move us in the right direction. I hope. Yeah, that's absolutely the hope, isn't it? We don't know what we don't know at this time. My sister uh, was volunteering at the zoo, and she worked in the ape house, which I was super jealous of. There's a an orangutan there named Lucy, who I love. And um, Lucy loves bags and pouches and lipstick. So I brought a backpack with a pouch and some old lipstick in it. And I asked the volunteer if I could draw on the glass. And they gave me permission. So I made big motions as I opened the backpack and I opened the pouch and you see Lucy and her eyes are like, she's starting to side eye me like, hmm, something's going on. And then she runs over and hops up Hold on with her toes on the windowsill, and she's like right up there. So I'm drawing on the glass with the lipstick, and she's like loving it. Reaches her hand behind, poops into her hand, takes the poop, and repeats the same actions on the glass. <laughs> Which is amazing. It's wow. hilarious, but that's amazing. She's fantastic. I mean, I, I just think she's the bomb. My sister would always send pictures and tell me about what Lucy got into and stuff. She used to live in a... Lucy lived with people who would dress her in people clothing. And so she's the, the only one of the orangutans that didn't grow up only around orangutans. So the other orangutans tr exclude her and treat her like she's a weirdo. And she's also the one who likes to wear clothes. So, like, she'll, my sister gave her an FBI t shirt. So, she wears the FBI t shirt and things like that. So, she's special in my heart. <laughs> like, I love Lucy with all of it. Well, that's, that's a pretty good display of your suit, your empathetic superpower there, Jennifer. <laughs> and it sounds like um, it might be real, also related to your, the equitable design initiatives. Yeah. So, I'm really grateful. I currently work at a place that, although one would think that it would be a big scary place because of some of the work that we do, I've found more people who know what equity is and care about what equity is. The place I worked before, I talked about inclusive design because that's like, that's everywhere else I've worked, it's like common. 
that that's what you're doing these days. But they told me, don't say that word. It's activism. And I was stunned. <laughs> and I'm like, GSA, it's all in GSA documents here. Like, and they were like, oh. <laughs> and uh, they were the ones that were really bad about like prioritizing accessibility and meeting Section 508 compliance and just sort of moving it off to put those issues in the backlog. You know, the client's happy. No one's complained. They think we're doing great work. It's like, you're brushing it all under the rug and you're telling them what you've done. And you, you know, you're dealing with people who don't know what section 508 is either because who does like very few people really know what it means to be section 508 compliant because it's missed. It's this mystery container. What is in this? What is this? What is this thing? So for our listeners who don't know, can you tell us a bit what section 508 is? Sure. So section 508, means that anything paid for with federal funds must be Section 508 compliant, which means it must meet WCAG 2.0 success criteria. And WCAG is Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And if you're ever looking for some really complicated, dense, hard-to-understand reading, I recommend (laughs) opening up the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And I think the people that are on the working groups with me would probably agree. And that's what we're all working towards trying to improve them. But um, I don't, I think that they're really, they make the job harder. So rather than just pointing at them and complaining, like a lot of people do on Twitter or deciding I'm going to create a business and make money off of making this clear for people, I decided instead to join and try to make it better. So The web content accessibility guidelines are based on um, perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust core. Core like this, not poor like me. (laughs) And so there's just a bunch of uh, accessibility criteria that you have to meet to make your work Section 508 compliant. And it's so hard to read and so hard to understand that I feel for everybody, like, you know, of course you don't know what Section 508 compliance is. It It's really, really hard to read. But if somebody who is an accessibility specialist tells you and writes up an issue ticket, you don't argue with them. You don't say this isn't a thing. You say, okay, how soon do I need to fix it? And you listen to them. But that's not what I experienced previously. Where I am now it's amazing. And the, and the place I worked before here, like just the contracting, they welcomed everything I said to them regarding accessibility. So I just clearly worked at a contractor that was doing a lot of lip service and not talking the talk, not walking the talk. Sorry. <laughs> Super frustrating because um, accessibility is only a piece of it. I am older probably than anybody on this call. And uh, I'm a woman working in tech and I identify as non-binary. The arguments I've had about they, them all my life has been stupid, but I'm just like, why do I have to be female? It's not like, I mean, I don't, it's just, why do I have to be one or the other? Like in our, anyway, no, everyone always argued with me. So I'm so grateful for the young ones now for, pushing all that 
I'm black, native, Mexican, and white all smushed together. And my grandma wouldn't let me in the house because I was apparently, my father was too dark. So thereby, therefore, I'm too dark. Hello? Look at this. So, you know, apparently, some people are big on the one drop rule, like, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, think, well, if you hate me or, or want to exclude me so much because somewhere in me, you know, there is this, and how do you feel about so and so? So and so, done with you. I'm, I'm, you are bad people, and we've got to fight this stupidity. And I have also invisible disabilities. So I'm full of all these intersectional things of exclusion. So I personally experience a lot of it. And then I have the empathy. So I'm always feeling for the people who are excluded. So what am I supposed to do with the fact that I'm smart and relatively able-bodied and have privilege of, of being lighter skinned so I can be a really good Trojan horse? I have to be an advocate. Like you what else am I supposed to do with my life? Be a privileged piece of poop that just wants to get rich and famous like a lot of people in tech? No. <laughs> and I don't want to be virtue signaling and savior complex either. And that's where equitable design has been a wonderful thing to learn more about. Humanity-centered. H-M-N-T-Y-C-N-T-R-D.com. And Creative Reaction Lab out of Missouri. Those are two places where people can do a lot of learning about equity and truly inclusion and um, challenging the tenets of white supremacy in our work in ways. I'm still trying to find better ways of saying the tenets of white supremacy um, because if you say that in the workplace, that sounds real bad, like especially a few months back, you know, before somebody else was, when someone else was in office, you know, when you say the tenets of white supremacy in the workplace, people are going to get a little rankled because it's not stuff we talk about in the workplace. Well, it's not just the workplace. Ah, yes. (laughs) They don't like that at sports bars either. Ask me how I know. Yeah, they sure don't. (laughs) We should go to sports bars together. (laughs) But I'm just going to go to them right now unless they're outdoors. But but when you talk to talk to people about the actual individual tenets, about power hoarding and perfectionism and worship of the written word and things like that, people can really relate. And then they go that you watch their faces and they go, Yeah, I do feel put in my place by these things and prevented from you know, succeeding, progressing, all of these things. These are things that we've all been ingrained to believe are the way we evaluate what's good and what's bad. But we don't have to. We can talk about this stuff and we can reject those things and replace them with other things. But, you know, I'm going to be spending the rest of my life trying to dismantle my biases. I'm okay with my prejudices because even since I was a kid, I recognized that we were all prejudiced and it's okay. It's our first, it's our knee jerk first assumption, but you always have to keep an open mind, but that prejudice is there to protect you. 
but you always have to question and go, what is that prejudice? Is that bullshit? Is it right? Is it wrong? And always look at yourself. It's always doing that, what do you call it, um, self-awareness stuff. And always be expanding it, changing it, moving it. But prejudice, prejudice has a, a place, like to, to protect, you know, speaking as someone who's had guns to her face and knives through her throat and, uh, you know, various other yucky things. Um, I know that when I told myself, oh, you're being prejudiced, push yourself out into that vulnerable position. Things didn't go very well. <laughs> so instead, recognize, okay, what are you thinking in this moment about this situation? Okay, how can you proceed and keep an open mind while pro- being, you know, protect self-protection? Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're talking about um, Daniel Kamen's system one and system two thinking. Right, the, we have these instinctive reactions to things, and, the, and the, a lot of them are learned. And yeah, I think they're all learned actually, uh, but they're instinctive, and they're 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 not thing, they're not things we decide consciously. Uh, and so, you know, they're they're there to protect us because they're way faster and way more efficient. And that's most of what we are as humans, as thinking and, and acting beings. But then we also have our rational mind, where we can use to examine those things. And so, it's important to utilize both. Uh, it's also important to know where your instinctive responses are harmful and how to modify them so that they're not harmful. And that is, that is the work. I've never heard of it. Thanks for putting that in there. Power accretion principles. Is that it? Oh, that's something type else. One. Oh. Type one and type two thinking. But I know with a lot of my therapy work as a trauma survivor, I have to evaluate a lot of what I think and how I re- react to things to change them to respond to things. But there are parts of having CPTSD that I am not going to be able to do that to. Like there are things where, like for example, in that old workplace where there was just this per- constant invalidation and dismissal of the work, which was very triggering as a rape survivor, incest survivor, that like was really bad. And it made me feel really unsafe all the time. And so I felt very emotional in the moment. And so I'd have to breathe through my nose, breathe out through my mouth, feel my tummy, make sure I can feel myself breathing deeply and um, try to calmly explain the dire consequences of some of these decisions. Um, and people tend to think that the design and development decisions we make when we're just building for the web aren't, you know, it's no big deal if you screw it up. Um, it's not like an architect making a mistake in a building and the building falls down. But when you make a mistake, that means a, um, a medical locator application doesn't load for an entire minute on a slow 3G connection when your audience is people who are financially challenged and therefore unlikely to have always high speed or you know new devices, you are making a design decision that is literally killing people. When you make a design decision or a development 
decision not to QA your work on mobile and tablet and desktop, then somebody else has to find out that your contact us options don't open on mobile. So people in crisis can't reach your crisis line. Mm-hmm. Um, people are dying. I'm not exaggerating. I, I, I have a talk I give called um, you're killing your users and it got rejected from this conference. And one of the reviewers wrote, this is the title is sensationalism. No one dies from our decision. And I was just like, Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> like that's the point. <laughs> oh my God. What a privileged life you live. What a wonderfully privileged life. I hope some, you know, I, I have, there's a difference between actions and thoughts and it's okay for me to think, I really hope you fall down a flight of stairs and wind up with a disability and need the things that you're now trying to (laughs) kibosh on. But that's not me saying, you know, I'm going to go push you down a flight of stairs or that I really do wish that on someone. It's, it's emotional venting of like, how could you possibly close yourself off to even listening to this stuff? And that's, that's the thing that like, like, how do we get to a point in tech where so many people in tech act like the bad stereotype of surgeons and have this God complex that there are particular entities working in government tech right now that are told you're going to save government from itself. You're, you've got the answers. You're the ones that are going to help government ship and make it things better for the, for citizens, you know, the people that use it. But the people that they hire don't know what they don't know. And they keep doing really horrible things like they don't follow the rule. They don't take the time to learn the rules. And so they put user personal identification, identifying information, personal health information on the public server without realizing it. That's a no-no. And then it has to be wiped, but it can never really fully be wiped. And then they make decisions like, oh, well, no, we're only worried about the stuff that's public facing. We're not worried about the stuff that's internally facing, even though the internally facing people are all some of the vulnerable people that we're serving. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, neutralizing a lot of what I'm talking about. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, you've convinced me of the problems, which was an easy sell for me. Now, what do we do? The first thing we do is we all give a fuck about other people. I mean, that's the big thing, right? Like, how do I convince you that you should care about people who aren't you? Yeah. I always think about the spectrum of caring. Um, I don't have a good word for it, but there are active and passive supporters, and you can be vocal or quiet like loud or quiet. And I want more more people to be going around the circle of it. So if they're vocally opposed, just be quiet. (laughs) If they're quietly opposed, maybe be quietly in support. And if you're quietly in support, maybe speak up about it. Like I want to nudge people along around this, the four quadrants. Uh, A lot of people only focus on getting people who passively care to be more vocal about it. That's a big, a big one. That's a big transition. But I also like to focus on the other two transitions, like getting loud people to be quiet about a thing that, as opposed anyway like like everywhere along that process is useful 
I think it's important to hear the people who are opposed because otherwise, how are we ever going to help understand? And how are we going to understand if maybe we're, we've got a big blind spot? But like, we have to talk about this stuff in a way that's thoughtful. I, I come from a place in tech where, um, in the late nineties, I was like, I want to, I want to move from doing print and on screen and uh, print and environmental to web because it looks like a lot of stuff is going to this web thing. And so I picked up Jeffrey Zeldman's Designing with Web Standards and Dan Cederholm's um, Bulletproof Web Design. And all of them talk about using web standards. And web standards means that you prioritize accessibility from the beginning. So the first thing you build is just HTML tagging your content and everyone can use it. Like you don't have, I mean, it's not going to be, it's not going to be fancy, but it's going to be completely usable. Um, and then you layer things on in through progressive enhancement to improve the experience for people with fancy phones <laughs> um, or whatever. Um, and I don't know why, but that's not how everybody's coming into doing digital work. They're coming in through React out of the box, thinking that React out of the box is, and it's like, nope, you have to build in the, the, the framework because nobody put the framework in React. React is just a bunch of hinges and loops, but you have to put the quality wood in and the quality glass panes and the handles and you know that everybody can use i'm not sure if that analogy is even going to work but um one of the things i realized talking with some colleagues today is i tend to jump to three steps in when i really need to go back start at the beginning and say here are the terms this is what section 508 is. This is what accessibility is. This is what A11Y is. And how you, you know, this is WCAG and this is how it's pronounced and this is what it means. And, um, this is the history of it. I think understanding the history of section 508 and WCAG is also vital because, um, in the first version of WIC, of Section 508, it adopted part of what was WCAG 1.0, but it wasn't like a one-to-one for 1.0. It was just some of it. And then it got updated in like 2017 to 2017 or 2018. I forget. I have, I, without my cheat sheet, I can't remember this stuff. Like I got other things that keep in my brain. I just pulled up my favorite cheat sheet and I put it in the chat sidebar here. Oh, thank you. It's in my slides for Ohana for digital product design that I gave at WX Summit. And I think I also gave it recently in another thing. Without Oh, UXPADC. But the thing is, the, tr- the changes only recently happened. Where it went to WCAG 2.0 was 2018, I think it got updated. So all those people that were resisting me in 20. 18, 2019, 2020, likely never realized that there was a refresh that they needed to pay attention to. And I kept trying to like say, no, you don't understand. Section 508 means more now. And technically it's also meaning like 
technically the access board that defines what section 508 is, is talking about moving it to 2.1 or 2.2. And those include these things. So we should get ahead of the ball, ahead of the curve or whatever you want to call. (laughs) And we should be doing 2.1 and 2.2. And even beyond thinking about compliance and, you know, that sort of stuff. The reason we want to do it for human beings is that 2.1 and 2.2 are for people who are cognitively fatigued. And I don't think there's anyone who's been through the pandemic who is not cognitively fatigued. If you are, you are a robot. I don't know. I don't know who could not be not cognitively fatigued. And then the other people that also helps are mobile users. So every, I mean, if you look, if any site looks at their usage stats, everything moving up and up and up on mobile devices. There's some people who don't have computers, but they only have phones. Um, so it just seems silly not to be supporting those folks. Um, but we need, I don't know. I, I need to think more about how to get there, how to be more effective in helping people care how to be more effective in teaching people. And one of the big pieces I've learned in the last six months is the first step is self-care, sleep, exercise, eat. Or maybe it's the other. Maybe those two need to be back and forth. I haven't decided yet because I'm still trying to get the sleep worked out. Before I moved to D.C., I was a runner, hiker, I had a sit spot at the local pond where I would, you know, hang out with the fishes and the fishes and the turtles and the frogs and the birds. And here I overlook the Pentagon and there are swarms of helicopters. And I build lots of, I grow lots of green things to sort of like put between me and it, but it's hard. Um, the running is stopped because I don't feel safe and things like that. But, um, and it's not that I live, I mean, I live in an antiseptic neighborhood intentionally because I knew every time I went into D.C. and I saw what I see, I lose hope because I can't not care. I, it kills me that I have to walk by people who clearly need, this, this is a messed up world. Like We talk about the developing world as the place where people are dying on the side of the road. It's like, do you have blinders on? Like it's happening here. I don't know what to do. I care too much. So what do we do? What do you think? Well, I think you, I think you have a hint. You, you've worked at places that are really resistant to um, accessibility and accessibility improvements. And you've worked at some that are very welcoming and eager, eager to implement them. So what were the differences? What do you think was the source of that dichotomy? I think um, at the place I worked after I left the hellhole, um, the product owner was an Asian woman. And the other designer was from India. Uh, whereas before the other place it was a white woman and a white man and another white man who was in charge. And then the place I work now, it's a lot of people who are very neurodiverse. Um, I work at MITRE, which is an FFRDC, which is a federally funded research and development center. It's full of lots of smart people who are very bookish. <laughs> it's 
funny. When I was a little kid, they used, I was in the gifted and talented, you know, kids. And so they would put us into these class sessions where we were to brainstorm. And I love brainstorming. I love imagining things. And I feel like, I remember thinking, I want to work in a think tank. And just all I do all the time is brainstorm. And we figure out a way to use some of those things. And I feel a little bit like I'm there now, which is kind of cool. And they treat, people treat one another really well at MITRE, which is nice. Not to say it's perfect. There's, there, I mean, nowhere's perfect, but compared to a lot of places, it's, it's better. I think it's the people that are taking the time to listen, taking the time to ask questions. And uh, the people I work with don't have a lot of ego, generally. At least not the ones I'm working with. I hear that they do exist there, but I haven't run into many of them. Whereas the other place, there was a lot of virtue signaling and a lot of um, savior complex. Um, actually, very little savior complex. They didn't really care about saving anyone with their own ass. Sorry. Snark. <laughs> Can, can you tell us a little more uh, about ego and how ego plays into these things? How do you think ego plays into these things? Well, I think it causes people to know. Um, <laughs> people turning questions around on, on me. That's one way. Um, <laughs> ego means a lot of things to a lot of different people, which is, which is why I asked the question, right? I, I think it was introduced to English by, by Freud. Um, and I don't want to use a Freudian theory for anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then when I talk to people about about death of the ego and apotheosis and 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 all of these things, it seems really unpleasant. People like their ident their self identity. People like being themselves, and they don't want to stop being themselves. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure how that's related to what you were saying. The way I'm hearing you use ego here sounds like self-centered, thinking about your own perspective, not taking the time and effort and energy to think about other people's perspectives. And if you don't have a diverse set of experiences to lean on on your own, you're missing out on a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I tend, to, I tend to think about, I guess it's my dysfunction. I mean, once again, it's like, how do my actions impact others? Now, why aren't other people thinking about how their actions impact others? Like, like when you're out in public, um, and you gotta, <laughs> you gotta cut the cheese. Are you gonna do it when there are a lot of people around? Are you gonna, like, are you gonna take a stinky deuce in a public bathroom that you know other people are gonna have? And, like, if you think about the community around you, you would go find a private one if you cared at all. But most people don't care and they think I do what I got to do. I just think we need to think a little bit more about the consequences of our actions. And like I, I tweeted yesterday or um, this morning about how, Oh, I think it was yesterday. I was watching TV and a new one of those food delivery commercials came on. This one, they send you a stove. You get a little oven and you cook all of their meals in this little throwaway dishes. So you have no dishes, nothing. How much are we going to just keep creating crap? When you think about like all of this takeout and delivery, there's just so much trash we're generating. 
we should be taxing the bleep out of companies that make these sorts of things. Like Amazon should have the bleep taxed out of it because of all the cardboard. And I'm just as guilty because I order the thing and the, the box of staples arrives in a box and it has a, the plastic bubble wrap all around it. Like it's just a box of $2.50 staples. But I couldn't be bothered to go. I don't know if they have them at Walgreens or not, but like for real, I don't know. We need to do better. We need to think about the consequences of these decisions and not just, not just do it. Like that's the thing that tech has been doing is like, let's make an MVP and see if it has wheels. Let's make a prototype, but do the thing. Okay. Let's do the thing. Oh, it's got wheels. Oh, it's growing. It's growing. It's growing. It's growing. Who cares about the consequences of all of it? Who cares? Your kids, your grandkids someday maybe will when the world is gone. We're seeing, I mean, we talk about climate change. We talk about 120 degree temperatures in Seattle and Portland, the ocean on fire, you know, the beaches eroding, like the ice cap. Who's it? The Arctic is having a hundred and some odd degree temperature day. Like we are screwing it up and our legislation isn't keeping pace with the advances in technology that are destroying things where are the people who care in the cycle and how are they interrupting the vcs who just want to like be the next big tech you know everybody wants to be the next zuckerberg or jack or bezos or gates or whatever and nobody has to deal with the consequences of their actions and their consequences of those design and development decisions. That's where I think it's ego is self-centeredness. It's wanting to be famous, wanting to be rich instead of really truly wanting to make the world a better place. I know my definition of better, all of our, we've got four different visions of what better is going to be. Um, and that's hard work. And maybe it is easier to just focus on getting famous and getting rich than it is on doing the hard work of taking four different visions of what good is and trying to find the way forward. Making the world a better place. The world will be a better place when I'm rich and famous, but that also means like, and that that's, an, that's the truth. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but what else you said was being empathetic and having a diverse well, marginalized people in charge where, where you can see the impact that, that things are, that's right. The impact that things are having on other people. You know, it's not, it's not just about me being rich and famous, but it's also about things being better for other people too. Yeah. I don't necessarily mean marginalized people have to be in charge. Right. I, t I took that jump based on your description of, of, of the places you worked for. I, I, I should, I should have specified that. I was, I wasn't clear there. Um, I do have to say that like, in general, when I've worked for people who aren't the status quo, more often than not, they bring a compassionate, empathetic approach. Not always. There have been some that are just clearly driven and power hungry, and I can't fault them either because it's got to take a lot to come up from wherever and fight through the doggy dog world. But in the project work, there's the for, with, and by. So the general way is that we, we design and build things for people. Then the next piece is we design and build things with the people that we're serving. 
But the newer way of doing things is that we, that we don't design and build the things. The people that we're serving design the things and tell us how, what they want to design, what they want designed. And then we figure out how to make sure that it's built the way they tell us to. And that sort of goes against like the Steve Jobs approach where Steve Jobs said people don't know what they want sort of thing. I think he wasn't that what he said. Yeah. Um, you know, well, there was Henry Ford who said if you asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Right. And Steve Jobs kind of did the same thing. Right. And we as designers have to be able to work with that and pull that out and suss it out and make sure that we translate it into something useful mm -hmm. and then iterate with to make sure that it, we get it. Like when I do research, listening sessions with folks, I have to use my experience doing this work to know what are the, like Indy Young taught me, inner thinking, reactions, and guiding principles. So those are the things that will help guide you on what people are really wanting and needing and what their purpose is. So you make sure that whatever you're understanding is closer to what they're really saying. Because they don't know what can be built. They don't know what can be designed. But they do know what their purpose is and what they need. Maybe they don't even know what they need, but they do know what their purpose is. And we can keep validating things. I want to amplify it. You said Indy Young. I read a lot of her work and she just says so many things that I wish someone would say. And she's been saying them for a while. I just didn't know about her. Indy yes. Young. I-N-D-I and Y-O-U-N-G. I am so grateful that I got to um, take her courses. I paid for them all myself except for one class. I let that the other place pay for one through my continuing ed. But I wanted to do it so badly that I just I paid for it all myself. The same thing with all the Creative Reaction Lab and humanity-centered stuff. I've paid for those out of my own money that, you know, probably could have gone to a vacation or buying a car or something. But contributing to our society in a, in a responsible and productive way, figuring out how to get my language and framework better. Like, like you said earlier, Damien, I'm really good at pointing out what the problems are. I worry about figuring out how we solve them because I don't, I don't really have the ego to think that I know what the answer is. But I'm, I'm very interested in working with others to figure out how we solve them. I have some ideas, but like, how do you tell a React developer that, you know, you must, you really have to learn HTML. You have to learn semantic HTML. I mean, that's like learning the alphabet. I don't understand. Oh, I have some ideas around that. Ember is my go-to framework. And they have accessibility baked into the introduction tutorial series. They have like 13 condoned add-ons that do accessibility-related things. At the conference, there's always a whole bunch of accessibility tracks. Ember is like happy path accessibility right front and center. Uh, React probably has things like that. We could have React's onboarding docs grow in that direction. That would be great. And have more React add-ons that do that that are condoned and supported by the community. It could have the same path. And it could probably even use a lot of the same core code even the same principles apply if you want to work together and come up with some stuff to go to react conferences or 
work with the React team or whatever. Sounds fun. One of the things you, you talked about, um, the way you described it, it made it sound like empathy was, was, was so much to the core of it, right? In order to care about accessibility, you have to empathize with people who, who need those, need that functionality. You have to empathize with people who are on 3G, uh, flip phones. That's not a thing, is it? But, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, empathize with, so a, a screen, a flat screen phone, smartphone looking thing. And it's still, yeah. if you, anyone's on a slow 3G, it's still going to be a miserable experience. Yeah. 3G with a, with a five-year-old Android OS. But pardon I don't think that, it's necessarily that people have to empathize. I mean, in an ideal hmm. world, they would, but maybe they'd be, maybe they could be motivated by other things like fast. Like, do you want a fast, um, Cumulative layout shift. Do you want like a great Core Vitals Google score? Do you want a great Google Lighthouse score? Do you want a clear Axe DevTools scan? Like when I get the hundred percent little person zooming in a wheelchair screen instead of issues found, I'm wicked happy. <laughs> Especially if I do it the first time and I hadn't been scanning all along and I just go to check it for the first time and it's clean. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, automation helps a lot. When yes. I worked at USCIS, um, I don't know what this meant, but they said we cannot automate these tests. I think we can, and they didn't do it yet. And I've, al- I've always been kind of baffled. I think half of it, you can automate tests around and we had none. At the time. Yeah, you can catch 30 to 50% of the accessibility issues via the Axe rule set and uh, JSX Alley and all of that. You can catch 30 to 50. Um, that sounds great. That's Let's still do better it. than, you know, catching none of them. Still not great, <laughs> but it's still better than nothing. They're not here to tell us why they can't, but adding things into your end to end tests shouldn't be that hard if you know how to write tests i don't personally know how to write tests i want to i don't know like i have to choose which thing am i going to work on i'm working on an acquisition project defining the requirements and the scope and the red tape of of what a contract will be and it's such foreign territory for me there's a lot of pieces there that I, I never ever thought I would be dealing with. And my head hurts all the time. I feel stupid all the time, but that's okay. If you're not doing something you haven't done before, maybe you're not learning, it's growing. I don't know. I'm, gro- I'm definitely growing, but in different ways. And I kind of miss the code thing of like, I have a to-do list where I really want to get good at Docker. And now I want to learn view things like that. And I want to get back to learning Python because Python, I think, is super cool. There's one thing I wanted to mention earlier that I just remembered. Uh, One thing that was eye-opening to me for accessibility concerns is when I heard that screen readers existed, which was several years into Mm. my programming career. I didn't know they were a thing at all. I think it's more common now that people know about them today than 10, 15 years ago. But um, I still haven't seen someone use a screen reader, and that would be really important for me as a developer. I'm not developing software lately either, so I'm not really uh, coding that. But if anyone hasn't, you should use a screen reader on your computer if you're developing software that might have to be used by one. Everyone has, so everyone on a Mac 
has voiceover. Everyone on an iPhone has voiceover. It's really hard to use on the iPhone. I feel like I can't, I haven't, I can't, I, oh, it's really hard. I've heard great things about TalkBack on Androids. And then on Windows, newer versions have Microsoft Narrator, which is a built-in screen reader. You can also download NVDA for free and install it. And if you have, uh, depends on how much money you want to spend. There are a bunch of different ways with to get JAWS. You can do JAWS too. Chrome has Chromebox. So you can get another screen reader that yeah, way. Yeah, so many options. It's a kind of overwhelming. If I had to recommend one for a Windows user and one for a Mac user, would you recommend the built-in ones just to start with to play with something? So everywhere I've tested, whether it was at um, the financial institution or the insurance place or the government place, we always had to test with JAWS and NVIDIA JAWS. and VoiceOver. I test with VoiceOver because it's what I have on my machine because I'm usually working on a Mac. But the way I look at screen reader is the number of people who are using screen readers is significantly fewer than the number of people with cognitive considerations. So I try to use good semantic markup, basic web standards so that things will work. I mean, things, Things have always been pretty great in screen readers because of that. I try to keep my code from being too complicated or my UIs from being complicated, which might to some visual designers seem somewhat boring to some of them. <laughs> Do you ever turn off CSS yes. for the test? That's Yes. And if it makes sense that way, then I know I'm doing it right. And is it still usable without JavaScript? Better yet, Hayden Pickering's way of like, it's not usable unless you turn off the JavaScript. That was fabulous. <laughs> I pissed off so many people. But to me, I try to focus on other things like how clear is it? How clean is it? Um, can I tab through the whole UI? Can I operate it with just a keyboard? Your keyboard is your, um, is uh, your best assistive tech tester. You don't, you know, skip. If you can tab through anything without getting cut uh, stuck, mm-hmm. excellent. If it if like you don't skip over nav items and my biggest pet peeve is when websites don't work when you zoom in, because all of my devices I have zoomed in, not because my vision is bad, but because for my posture, I want to be able to see my screen from a far distance and not lean in and crane my neck over my laptop and my phone both. And a lot of websites break yeah. if you zoom in the text at all. You can't read anything. Yeah, at the one place I worked before, we required um, two steps of zoom in, two steps of zoom out, and it still had to be functional. And I don't see that in most places. They don't bother to say things like that. Yeah. Um, at the government, I don't know how common it is people do that. I do it, so I think it's very common. But I don't <laughs> know the right. But that's how the world is, right? At some, I can tell you that once you hit this this old age. Um, and your eyes start to like turn against you and things are too small or too light. You suddenly understand the importance of all of these things so much more. So for all of those designers doing your 
thin gray text on white backgrounds or thin gray text on gray backgrounds or your tiny little 12 and under pixels for your legalese. Karma's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done it. Like I, there was a time I thought legal text did, wasn't, nobody cared about the legalese. That's not true. Even your, your footer on your website should be big enough for people to read. Otherwise they think I'm signing away my soul to Satan because I can't read it. You know, like if you can zoom it in, that's great. But some apps disable the zoom. So we usually end on a series of reflections. How, how do you feel about moving to sure. that? Oh, we'll let, we'll let our guests go last. Casey, do you have a reflection you want to share with us? I'm thinking back to Mondo's dog. And I thought it was interesting, Jennifer, that you linked your experiences with the dog experiences. Like some of the symptoms you have might be similar if the dog has CPTSD too. And I think that's really insightful. I think a lot of animals have that kind of setup, but we don't treat them like we'd treat humans with those issues, even if they're similar. The phrase that was in your bio, equitable design initiatives. I really wanted, I really wanted to dig into that because that, that fascinates me. And and it, and I guess it kind of draws that bridge between things that I think are very important or are very important for me, both um, accessibility, uh, that sort of work, especially in, in software design, uh, because that's where I'm at, and then destroying the tenets of white supremacy uh, and being able to connect those as as things that work together and seeing how they work together. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to be reflecting on. Yeah, whenever we're doing our work, looking for opportunities to surface and, and put it out for everyone to look at who has power. If this changes, who has power? If this doesn't change, who has power? What is motivating the players? Are people motivated by making sure that no one's excluded or are people motivated by making sure that their career moves forward or they don't get in trouble rather than truly serving I still am in the mindset of serving the people with a purpose that we're aiming to meet the needs of kind of thing. I still have that mindset. A lot of the prep work, we're still talking about the people we're ser- we aim to serve, and it's still about getting them into the cycle. That is a very big position of power that a designer has, and acknowledging that that's power and that I wield that power in a way that I consider responsible, which is to make sure that we are including people who are historically underrepresented, especially in those discussions. I'm really proud of a, of a remote design challenge where all of our research participants were either people of color or people with disabilities. And that findings, the insights were so juicy. There was so much that we could do with what we got. It was really awesome. So by equitable design initiatives, it's really just thinking about acknowledging the power that we have and trying to make sure we do what we can to share it, transfer it, being really respectful of other perspectives. And I've always thought of it as infinite curiosity about others. And some people have accused me of being nosy and they didn't realize it's not about like getting up in their private business. It's just, I want to be gracious and respect others. What I will reflect on was um, how I really need to rest. I will continue to reflect on how I rest is key 
I'm making a conscious decision for the next couple of months to not volunteer because I tend to do too much, as Casey may or may not know. <laughs> yeah, I want to wake up in the morning and feel energized and ready to take full advantage of, which is not the right way to phrase it, but show up as my best self and, and well prepared for the work, especially since I now have found myself in a incredibly um, compassionate, smart place that it genuinely aims to improve equity and social justice and do things for the environment and how grateful I am. Like I totally thought this place was just about like, let's bomb them all. And it's so not. <laughs> so there's so many wonderful people. I highly recommend everybody come work with me if you're good if you care about things. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>